Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to our 17th annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And tonight we have the great privilege of having Chris Hedges with us. Chris, a war correspondent for 20 years. He's written 11 books, won a Pulitzer Prize, won the Amnesty International Award for Humanitarian Journalism, awards from the LA Press Club, named you Online Journalist of the Year, named one of your columns the best column of the year. Chris, welcome to our Writer's Symposium. Thank you. All right, I, you know, I've read your stuff for years, and yet I just found out that there is a book of yours that I have not read. And uh, I, I just found out about it over the weekend, a book you wrote about the life of a penny. Well, that wasn't published. Oh, oh. What? Which is a good thing. <laughs> really, really? Why, why not? Was it just I was rejected? seven, and oh. uh, that was my first foray into literature. And I, I, I started, I, I probably should have dated the penny a little earlier, because uh, I think after about 30 pages, I just sort of ran out of ideas. You wrote 30 pages about a penny? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was transferred from somebody's pocket to somebody else's pocket. <laughs> riveting. Just absolutely riveting. <laughs> you'll, you'll post this on your blog, I, I, I hope, soon, now that we've <laughs> re-kind of given it new life. Yeah, I'd have to finish it first. Yeah, yeah, all right. Well, I'm really intrigued by your background. Um, You went to Harvard Divinity School. You were raised in a a home where your father was a a Presbyterian uh, minister. You worked as an urban pastor uh, in the Boston area, and then you became a war correspondent out of that. Now, you have this great statement in, uh, in your book, The World As It Is. Ministers and journalists tell the truth at the risk of their careers. What does that mean? I think great preachers, like great reporters, care primarily about truth. Uh, and truth is often very different from news. One can have a story that is factually correct, uh, that uh, fits that sort of classic definition of objectivity, and yet it's not true. And but you lost me. How, 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 can, how can that be? Well, first of all, as reporters, I mean, we manipulate and select facts. Um, you know, if you're we don't right, make them up. No, you don't make them up. But it's how you can use the same facts to create a very different uh, impression in, of the same event in the New York Times and the New York Post. Uh, there, there are ways of using facts uh, to convey uh, ideas, images, stereotypes, uh, and so this idea that, uh, uh, you know, there is a kind of clinical neutrality to journalism, and, you know, I speak as somebody who did it for many years, is just incorrect. But I think the really great reporters want to convey to their readers or to their viewers or listeners what is true, uh, and that often gets them in trouble with uh, management. Uh, and the higher you go within these organizations... Uh, the more uh, the loyalty is not to truth or even news, but to a career. And, and it's why I think great reporters are always kind of management problems within these institutions. So is this why you were a management problem to the New York Times? I, I mean, was, they, they reprimanded you. Yes, I was a management problem. Um, 
but but all great reporters are, and and, and I think that 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 you know institutions need those kinds of reporters. Uh, they're never going to advance within the institution, uh, but they're just dogged. I mean, I use the example of Sidney Shanberg, who had won a Pulitzer for the New York Times, uh, covering the uh, fall of Pol Pot and the rise of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. He goes back to New York, works for the Metro Desk, and sees uh, wealthy developers essentially pushing the working and the middle class out of New York, uh, destroying uh, rent-subsidized apartments, and he takes them on. Well, these developers are all having lunch, of course, with the publisher or dinner, uh, and, uh, and he's a bulldog. He has that, we won't let go until he's pushed out of the institution. There's a classic example of a great reporter whose loyalty was to the reader and whose loyalty was to the truth, and who was willing to pay a price for it. With his job. Right. And your father did a similar thing uh, as a minister. My father was uh, a Presbyterian minister. We lived in a small farm town in upstate New York. Uh, and he was very outspoken in terms, of the, in terms of supporting the civil rights movement. There were no people of color in my town. Uh, this was in the early 1960s when Martin Luther King was uh, one of the most hated men in America, certainly within rural white enclaves. Uh, he was uh, very outspoken uh, in the anti-war movement against the Vietnam War, uh, and finally very outspoken for gay rights. He, uh, hmm. My uncle, his youngest brother, was gay, and my father had a particular sensitivity of the pain of being a gay man in America in the 1950s and the 1960s, and he used his position as a pastor to call for gender equality rights and marriage and ordination of gays, which got him into deep trouble with the institutional church. Uh, he had a church at the time in the city of Syracuse, and I was attending as an undergraduate uh, Colgate, and when my dad found that there was no gay and lesbian uh, organization at Colgate, he brought gay speakers to my campus. Uh, and this led, after a while, to uh, gays and lesbians telling him that they were too uncomfortable forming an organization, uh, which he suggested they do. Uh, and that was a problem he solved by uh, driving down one day and taking me to lunch and telling me that I had to found it. He, he put you in charge of the, uh, was, the, the gay I alliance. was certainly one of the most committed heterosexuals at Colgate University, but I, <laughs> I did found the Gay and Lesbian Alliance, uh, and it met every Tuesday with my name. And I uh, would go into the uh, dining hall for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and the checker would check off the appropriate box and hand it back and go, faggot. Hmm. So I made it my undergraduate mission to seduce his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if growing up in that kind of an atmosphere is in part what gave you this desire to tell the stories of of people who, if you didn't tell them, might not be told. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a confluence of events. Um, certainly my father was a great example of what it meant to be a great preacher uh, and, and the cost of that. I mean, it was a kind of reminder that uh, you're not rewarded for virtue. Um, I think the other thing was that I won a scholarship to a pre-prep school um, when I was 10. Is that like a preschool? No, it's like, uh, it's like a finishing school for the super wealthy. Um, and uh, I was one of 16 kids on scholarship. Um, 
and it was a real window into uh, elitism. Uh, uh, the, you know, much of my family was working class, came from Maine, uh, struggled, and it was a kind of lesson that if you're rich, uh, if you're poor in this country, you don't get a second chance. But if you're rich, you get chance after chance after chance after chance. And um, I, I, you know, the, because I came out of the working class, I think it kept me grounded. I always remembered who I was and where I came from. And I had this kind of bizarre window into how systems of privilege work to perpetuate themselves. And I think that uh, walking away from that experience, coupled with the uh, example of my father, uh, made me committed uh, because I had a kind of privilege that so many of my relatives didn't have, certainly just as smart as I was. Um, but nobody ever gave them that opportunity. Uh, and I, I felt that, you know, that, that's where I stood. Th those are the people who, you know, I, I, would, I should speak for because uh, the systems of power had so often denied them the capacity to have a voice. In, in covering wars, you, you have said that war is an addiction um, and that it's a powerful narcotic, but but you also say that covering wars is an addiction and, and like a narcotic. How, how is it like a narcotic? Well, soldiers and Marines call it a combat high, uh, and it's real. Uh, you know, first of all, combat itself is a kind of zen-like experience. I mean, even colors are brighter. You're aware or present in ways that you never were before. Uh, a battlefield can replicate a variety of synthetic drug trips, uh, hallucinogenic landscapes after heavy shelling. Uh, you never sleep, you know, that kind of zombie hashish-like state. Um, and it, it, it is a world that perverts and deforms and uh, destroys you. Uh, and if you spend long enough in its grip, it's very hard to fit in anywhere else. So, you know, war correspondents are a small fraternity and tend to leap from conflict to conflict to conflict. So when I was covering the war in Kosovo, there were two reporters there who I had covered the war with in El Salvador 20 years before. Um, yeah, but when I read Hemingway, he made it sound pretty cool. And uh, I read your stuff, and you say it messed you up. Well, uh, I mean, that's why Fitzgerald was a better writer than Hemingway. <laughs> um, Hemingway... Uh, he made it cool. Yeah, it was romance. But, I mean, it was that mythic version of war, uh, which isn't real. And um, I don't know that in his first book uh, that uh, I think th there was more sort of honesty. Um, by the time he got to his, you know, For Whom the Bells Tolls and the Nick Adams stories, yeah, I think that's right. He... Uh, but Hemingway was, a, like Hunter Thompson and other writers, a perfect example of, in some ways of what you don't want to become. Uh, I think Mailer, we were talking about earlier, became like this. Y you know, you, you become a caricature of who you are. And I think that the more uh, sort of notoriety or celebrity you gain, the more you have to build walls hmm. uh, to keep the outside world out because people, uh, you can dine out on that caricature, but it'll kill your art. Um, some of Hemingway's very early stories, uh, Clean Well Lighted Place, 
uh, you know, hills like white elephants are very, a cat in the rain, very touching, very sensitive, very moving. And if you look at the end of his career with the Nick Adams stories, they're awful. Uh, and I think the tr same was true with Hunter Thompson, immensely gifted, both as a journalist and a writer. His first book on the Hell's Angels is brilliant. It was a great book. Brilliant piece of journalism. Of course, Fear and Loathing and the Campaign Trail in Las Vegas. And then, you know, look what the schlock that he turned out in the end. Yeah. So, I, and I think Hemingway was, was uh, sort of an example of that, yeah. And yet, you've even said that you'd rather die covering war than go back to the routine of life. Well, I, I don't, not now, but I mean, I certainly during the war in El Salvador, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, when I was, I was there for five years and 22 reporters were killed, and a lot of people, I, a lot of combat, and I think there comes a certain point where you, you just realize that, that's, that you're not, I didn't think I would leave alive. And, and you become so consumed. Uh, I think this often happens in the first war you cover. You so, become so consumed by it um, that you're just willing to sort of fatally accept that. I mean, and I watched reporters leave, and uh, a, a photographer, a Newsweek photographer, went to Miami, and he just couldn't cope. He, you know, he couldn't, and he came back. And the moment he stepped off the plane, we knew he'd come back to die. And he was shot through the back and killed in a firefight in less than about 30 seconds. So uh, I, I think that uh, it's very hard to escape from the culture of war when you descend to the level that we descended to. And that's why so many, I mean, I knew Marine Colvin. Uh, Recently he, died in killed Syria. Killed in Syria. And uh, you, you keep going back. It's like, you know, that dance with death, that moth towards the flame. You go back for one more hit, uh, and then you don't come back. And I write about my friend Kurt Shork, who I covered the war in Iraq with, and, and uh, in Bosnia, and Sarajevo, and later in Kosovo. Uh, and he, he goes off to Sierra Leone, and he's killed with another friend of mine in ambush, uh, Miguel Gil Moreno. Um, they just couldn't break free from that dance with death. So three journalists have died recently in Syria. At some point, when you would read these accounts, or would you think that could have been me? Of course, because in the case of uh, Colvin and the French photographer, the, in, they were in a building that was hit by rockets. They started running down the stairwell. They were 10 feet from the door. The other rocket came in and killed. I mean, I've been in... I mean, it, it, I, I wasn't friends with Marie. Uh, I knew her, and I worked around her. Um, I mean, she was a colleague, but I was a little, even I was a little surprised at how deeply her death affected me. And I think because it triggered precisely, mm -hmm. it, it just, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'd been there. Yeah. Was, was the moment it, you knew you had to get out of that kind of uh, addiction uh, was when you beat up the airline clerk? No. No. Uh, really? That wasn't, that wasn't no. a signal? No, I mean, that was, uh, I mean, I should probably tell the story. Because um, I've wanted to do that several times, and, and, and yet it didn't make me want to quit being a professor. I had been five years in Salvador. Uh, I was a mess. I, had a, I used to have a nervous twitch in my face like this. Um, uh, you know, I'd covered the war too long, and... I was on my way to study Arabic and then go to the Middle East, and I had a dog, and uh, I was in Costa Rica, and I'd sedated the dog, uh, 
and they told me that uh, the pressurized cabin wasn't operable and the dog would have to like stay in a crate for a week until the next flight. And I said, I'm not going to leave my dog in a crate. And there were words exchanged, and then I jumped over the counter. He stabbed me with a pen like this. And um, uh, that was the last thing he was able to do. And, um, well, it, it, it's, worth, it's worth telling the audience that you trained as a boxer. Yeah, I was spent two and a half years as a boxer, so yeah. it wasn't a fair fight. So, yeah, it wasn't a fair fight, exactly. Um, so what happened to the dog? Well... I don't care about the airline. I jumped on top. He got what he deserved. I jumped on top of him, and the whole KLM staff went and hid in the office and watched. <laughs> and there was an Iberia flight. And so suddenly the manager comes running out and goes, no, we'll put you on the Iberia flight to Madrid. And I said, okay. And they put the dog on the Iberia flight. But I wouldn't wash the blood off my face for some reason. I don't know. And I just... <laughs> and. So when I got on the... And, of course, all the Iberia passengers had watched it. If this was New York, I'd be in jail. But luckily, it was Central America. And uh, so I get on the Iberia flight with dried blood. I won't wash it off all the way to Madrid. And every time I would get up to go to the bathroom and walk down the aisle, every passenger would... would That's what, that's what war does to you. <laughs> and yet, you say that war feels like love. At its inception. I, yeah, I, I don't get it. Well, because it, 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 you, it has the power of exhilaration. It has the adrenaline rushes. It has the sense of comradeship, which is different from friendship. Uh, it, uh, you're wedded to a cause. I mean... There's a very, very dark side to what we do, and all the sort of uh, descriptions or accolades that were presented to Colvin disturbed me because I certainly think it's important what we do, but, but that element, uh, that, that self-destructive element is also there. Um, and, you know, war is intoxicating at, a, at its beginning, both for the general population, for... Uh, those who go to fight it, for those who cover it. Um, but, of course, it, 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 it over time, uh, consumes you. I mean, it's a war is, at its essence, is about death. Um, and, I mean, you know, the, the death, at, when you first see it, is deeply seductive. Yeah. In, even though all of your books seem so angry, your books really come across as angry. I, I'm guessing I'm not the first one who's told you that. Um, you're angry at hapless politicians, gutless news media, gullible populations, shameless corporations, and you really do seem angry at everything. And yet, you always follow up that anger with a discussion about love. How do you get to love after you've seen what you've seen and come to the conclusions that you've come to about all these different groups that you think are morons? Well, I mean, that, isn't that what Isaiah and Elijah, and I mean, isn't that what all the prophets did? Um, you know, they were angry. Uh, Augustine said that hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage, anger at the way things are, and courage to see that they don't remain the way they are. And uh, I think a deep anger at injustice and human cruelty is ultimately an expression of empathy and love. And to be in a privileged position to come out of having spent months in Gaza and to understand how the Palestinians suffer and to feel it and to have it hurt 
uh, and, and to see the indifference and callousness of the outside world is to make you angry. Uh, but it is an anger that I think is bred out of a, a kind of compassion uh, and, and a kind of identification with human suffering. I mean, that's always the problem with coming back from the outer reaches of empire. Uh, I remember having a long discussion at the inception of the Afghan war with uh, other professors at Princeton who talked about how we were going to liberate the women of Afghanistan. And as if once you start using explosive devices like Hellfire missiles, you can even talk about human rights. And I was the only one at the table who had actually been in a war zone. And yet I had to sort of speak in that rational, cold, academic language while I, this mounting frustration, almost hysteria, um, because all sorts of images, visual images, were bubbling to the surface, which were probably inex- inappropriate to share. Um, and I think that is very true for those of us who come out of this experience and have seen the callousness of, of what we do and the cruelty of what we do and, and coping with even, even well-meaning naivete. People who mean well, but finally don't understand and don't want to look. Conrad got this in Heart of Darkness. I mean, finally, when he confronts Kurtz's fiancée, he can't tell her Kurtz's dying words, which are the horror of the horror. And he says, he died speaking of you, which was a lie. Uh, and, and I think that that is you know, the great fable of empire and the inability of those who live within the heart of empire to see what is done in their name, who they are. But how do you, how do you get to love from that? I mean, you were imprisoned by the Iraqi uh, Republican Guard. You've had guns held at your head for hours at a time. You had a price on your life. How do you get to love from there? Um, when I graduated from college and I went to uh, live in that housing project for two and a half years in Boston, in Roxbury, and ran a church there, I was not prepared to see the kind of human suffering that uh, is visited upon our urban poor. Uh, and it was not a kind of suffering that I had even imagined. I remember going back to my great mentor at Colgate, uh, the chaplain, Coleman Brown, and just sitting down in his office and saying, uh, are we created to suffer? And he said, is there any love that isn't? I think that when you love deeply, you suffer deeply. When you care about Palestinians or Iraqis or Salvadorans who... Um, are enduring tremendous cruelty, then uh, your vehemence by which you express their suffering is interpreted as being angry uh, when in fact it's, it's born out of, I think, deep affection. Hmm. I was really intrigued by a, a statement you made toward the end of uh, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Uh, about how you couldn't sleep when you were covering wars, but if you were in a home where the people loved each other, you slept great. Yeah, because I think the people who are most attracted to war are those who are most incapable of love. That war and violence becomes a kind of substitute for the inability to love. And especially in the Balkans where you had relationships that crossed ethnic lines... Uh, they couldn't demonize the other. 
they found, uh, you know, within others the worth and value that they found within their own relationship. And they were free. In a war, when it begins, it's, I mean, Kafka's right, it's a kind of collective insanity. Nationalism is a disease. Nationalism is about, at its core, self-exaltation. And, of course, the flip side of nationalism is always racism of the other. And these people were somehow immune to that. Uh, And you could feel that. You you could feel it, yeah. You could feel that there was love in a home. I could feel that they had complete lives and they didn't have to seek meaning or identity or uh, fulfillment outside of their relationship. That that relationship, which had a sacred quality to it, um, made them fully human. And, um, and, And having lived in a world gone mad to walk into the presence of that relationship was deeply comforting. In your, in your book, American Fascists, you say that fundamentalism banishes love. How can that be? Because it's about authority. Fundamentalism is about authority? Yeah, it's not. It's about, you know, there's a reason that fundamentalists keep talking about the Ten Commandments, which, of course, Jesus didn't write. Uh, it's Jesus this, Jesus that, but when it comes to nailing something up in a courtroom, it's Moses. Uh, look, if they want to nail the Beatitudes up in a courtroom, I'm all behind them, which is the core of... Uh, <laughs> that is the core of the Christian message. And coming out of the church, my frustration with a liberal church is that they have not, not denounced these people for who they are, which is heretics. They have, Fundamentalists are heretics. Those who embrace the gospel of prosperity and have fused the iconography and language of Christianity with the iconography and language of the state are heretics. Uh, that, was, that is just an utter uh, perversion of the core message of the Christian gospel. And I don't really understand why you spend three years in divinity schools, as I did, and get out in the wider world and don't understand that this radical message is something that has to be fought for. Now, interestingly, you talk about fundamentalism on the side of the atheists as well, and I watched some of your debates with uh, Christopher, the late Christopher Hitchens, and, and all I could say at the end of those was, yikes. Those, it, was, it actually sounded a lot like if you were debating a fundamentalist Christian. It's the same. I mean, fundamentalism uh, doesn't have to come in, in religious form. It can come in many forms. And it can come in secular form. These people use the language of scientific rationalism to exalt themselves. The problem with, uh, you know, the peculiar... And I think we shouldn't maybe even use the word fundamentalist because the, the kind of religion that has been popularized by the Christian right is not strictly fundamentalist and it's not evangelical. Because fundamentalist uh, traditionally called on re- believers to remove themselves from the contaminants of secular society to shun politics. Uh, uh, We're not seeing that now, are we? Yeah, this is very different. So if you look at, you know, fundamentalists in the 1920s, they were not trying to create the quote-unquote Christian state. I think they use the term evangelical, they use the term fundamentalist, but what they're calling for is something that traditional fundamentalists and traditional evangelicals never called for. Uh, And... uh, 
yeah, the, 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 my frustration with the new atheists is that, uh, you know, instead of condemning uh, Muslims as uh, Satan worshipers, they condemn them as barbarians, but the result is the same. And I think that, that, that the core of it is really about self-worship, about uh, elevating ourselves and our own narrow privileges and worldview, giving it a kind of moral superiority. The Christian right does that, but Hitchens, Harris, Dawkins, they all do that too. And, um, and that's why their, their politics is, is virtually identical. It's virtually the same. Um, and it was like debating. I mean, I've debated the Christian right, and it is, it's exactly like debating the Christian right because the Christian right can only debate their caricature of you. You're a godless, secular humanist, you know. And they can't, they can't debate outside of that cartoon. Well, the Christian right is, the, uh, the new atheists are the same. So that when they debate you, you know, uh, you know, I don't believe in angels. I don't believe in magic. I, uh, you know, I understand that there are many contradictions in the Bible. They can only debate that caricature. They can't. And, and so it's like two trains passing in the night. There's never a conversation. So the end of the debate at UCLA with Sam Harris his summation is, I feel like it's the 15th century we're talking about witches. Well, I don't believe in witches. I mean, um, but they, they're not, they're, they're theologically illiterate. Uh, and um, they can't, you know, they don't, they, they can't have a discussion uh, around a Tillich or a Niebuhr or a Bart because they've never read it. Um, and it's really a celebration, and, and nor do they believe they should. Um, and it's really, in the end, a kind of celebration of their own ignorance. <laughs> Speaking of ignorance, let's talk about power for a minute. <clears throat> uh, you say in your, uh, in, in your book, uh, The Empire of Illusion, that those in power should fear and dislike journalists. Why is that? Well, it's the Julian Benda vision of the world, his book, Treason of the Intellectuals, where he writes that we have a choice between serving either privilege and power or justice and truth. And, and he's attacking the academy. But he said, those, the more you make concessions to those who serve privilege and power, the more you diminish the capacity for justice and truth. And I think that's right. I think that for those who care about justice, there is a constant alienation from power and even antagonism towards power in whatever form it takes. Um, you know, all of the true correctives to American democracy never achieve formal political power. Uh, the, the Liberty Party that fought slavery, the suffragists, uh, the, the labor movement, the civil rights movement. And yet, you could say that at least until he was killed in April 1968, Martin Luther King was probably the most powerful political figure in America. Because when he went to Memphis, 50,000 people went with him. And I think for those of us who care about justice, uh, we have to accept that it's not our job to take power. Uh, it's our job to be uh, perpetually in opposition to power. Uh, you know, the, the liberal class is traditionally that kind of safety valve. The liberal used class to be. used to be. It was never designed to be the political left. You had radical movements, the Wobblies, uh, the old CIO, uh, even the Communist Party, that was meant to pressure a responsive liberal class. That's how the New Deal got passed. And and, you know, one of the obsessions of Dostoevsky is the breakdown of liberalism. That's what Demons is about. That's what Notes from Underground is about. 
It is when liberalism doesn't work. It's that defeated dreamer, mouse man, and notes from underground. The person who went to all the Obama rallies and chanted, yes, we can, and now is cynical and in despair. And um, the important point that Dostoevsky makes is that uh, you know, when that liberal center doesn't work, when the, the power, power is unresponsive to the suffering of the masses of people, then, in Dostoevsky's words, you enter an age of moral nihilism. And I think that the destruction of our radical movements, uh, which has disempowered uh, the working class and the disenfranchised, coupled with the kind of hollowing out of liberal institutions in the name of anti-communism, um, really lifted all of the constraints and impediments to uh, unfettered capitalism, which is Karl Marx understood as a revolutionary force, which turns everything into a commodity. Human beings become commodities. The natural world becomes a commodity that you exploit until exhaustion or collapse. And that's why the environmental crisis is intimately twinned with the creation of a kind of global neo-feudalism where workers in America are told that they have to be competitive in a global marketplace, which really means they have to be competitive with sweatshop workers in Bangladesh who make 22 cents an hour or prison labor in China. Part of the, the kind of the destruction of all of this, in your view, is, is, uh, is evidenced by or maybe even caused by uh, the loss of the importance of print media. You write uh, extensively about what an, uh, this kind of, we're, we're more of an illiterate uh, society, becoming an illiterate society on, based on um, pictures instead of words, and the print news media, the, the kind of decline of print news media are, are part of this. Well, here's, here's my question. Print news media, as you have said, and, and I think I believe too, are, are, are capable of providing nuance and complexity and uh, verification and all of that. And as that diminishes, we get less complexity and nuance. But wouldn't you agree, we don't want complexity and nuance. You know, the, the Kardashians, are in, they're interesting. Well, it's, you know, when Cicero was writing about the arena. Wait a second, I'm talking about the Kardashians. You can't bring up Cicero in that well, conversation. The, the arena was, you know, gave them the Kardashians of their day. Uh, um, All right. And, I'll accept that. You know, he writes about what happens at the end, the twilight of an empire, when you invest your emotional and intellectual life in spectacle. And that's just what we've done. Uh, you read Joseph Roth on the end of the Austro-Hungarian empire. It's very similar. Um, as things get worse and worse, there is a kind of willful checking out. Uh, it, all totalitarian societies are image-based societies. The vast majority of images that saturate us are controlled by corporations and public relations firms. The airwaves are awash in lies. We confuse how we are made to feel with knowledge. Uh, the destruction of print is the destruction of a world and a public discourse based on verifiable fact. The rise of uh, emotional uh, uh, media entities like Fox News and is really about teaching people to believe whatever they want to believe 
that lies can be true, uh, and, and that once public discourse is no longer rooted in verifiable fact, as Hannah Arendt pointed out, uh, then totalitarianism becomes almost inevitable. And so the, the, it's worse than the destruction of print. It's the changing of an entire discourse, uh, essentially wrenching it away from reason uh, towards emotion. And, and totalitarian societies do spectacle very, very well. You're not a big fan either of uh, academic institutions. And um, in fact, you've, uh, you've said that they don't train people to think. And, um, and you're especially harsh on literature departments, which I took as a personal attack. <laughs> Books were your salvation, you say, but students are having the life sucked out of books at universities. There you go. There's, there's a Fox News watcher right there. So, so what, what, is that, what does that even mean? Well, you know, if you look at how literature is taught, it's... I mean, any great artist, and including a great writer, of course, finally writes uh, because they, they want to transform the reader. And the sort of obsession with um, literary criticism or folio criticism, uh, it, it desiccates, I think, what these writers sought to convey. Uh, you know, Conrad wrote Heart of Darkness, so that we would understand Iraq. Um, But try getting into that discussion in a classroom. Uh, And having taught at some of the elite universities in this country, Princeton, Columbia, what distresses me is how we're just creating a class of systems managers. I mean, 49% of the graduating class of Harvard a couple years ago all went into the financial services industry, which is an utterly parasitic criminal enterprise. Um, the, in, the, in the 17th century, speculators were hung. And now they run our economy and our government. And uh, I mean, I, you know, I know what, com- what, what gambling on commodity prices, Goldman Sachs is one of the biggest, does. I've been in the Sudan when nobody can afford wheat because it's risen by 100%. Children die. Children starve. Uh, so Lord Blank, you know, Lloyd Blankfein can make another $100 million bonus. I mean, this is just absolutely repugnant. Um, there's a word for it. It's called murder. Uh, and, uh, and yet our most elite institutions, I mean, I have to sort of, I listen to Obama's State of the Union, and he talks about how he's going to improve American schools and so we can be competitive in the global marketplace. I mean, look, the, the best educated in this country are the ones who led us right into this mess. They all graduated from Harvard and Princeton and Yale, Larry Summers and Robert Rubin and the rest of them. Uh, the, 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 problem, the, the, the problem is greed, unchecked greed by a privileged elite. And, and institutions like Harvard bow before this elite. I mean, the only, if there's any sort of uh, you know, underside to 
or you know, sort of bright moment in Larry Summers' trashing of the American economy, we can take consolation in the fact that he pissed away one-third of the Harvard endowment by buying derivatives. He did. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I find that you know, students at these institutions, they're conditioned to be so deferential to authority. They have to do everything right in order to have to take all the right AP classes and get perfect grade point averages and perfect SAT. So by the time they get in there, they're certainly capable and intelligent in that kind of narrow analytical way that standardized testing rewards. Um, and yet they're completely supine before systems of authority. And they are funneled straight into trading floors where they move people's money around electronically for 14 hours a day. Uh, and I think that education's uh, or in, you know, academic institutions sort of crave and desire for money. I mean, look, the half of most trustee boards at these universities should be in jail. Uh, the, the, the hiring of presidents of colleges for a million dollars a year is over-glorified fundraisers. They have nothing to do with education. It's really corrupted. And, and, and now you have in, in universities where they have to raise all their own funds, including their own salaries, including their own research money, uh, and you watch humanities departments wither away and die um, because no corporation is going to back the classics department. And the humanities, because, you know, the humanities, education is meant to be subversive. It's meant, it goes back to Socrates, it's meant to teach you to question assumptions and structures. And uh, it's meant finally to teach you how to think. And that's very different from teaching you what to think. And, uh, and I worry that you know, we produce an education system that is purely vocational, and we don't teach people how to think. We, and so that when there's a financial meltdown in 2008, the only thing figures like Summers and others do is know how to serve a dead system, which is to reinflate a speculative economy by looting the U.S. Treasury in the largest transference of wealth upwards in American history. And there's a kind of idiocy to that. And it's perpetuated not because... Uh, you know, America has low test scores in science. It's perpetuated by an elite, uh, which has no check on, uh, on their own self-enrichment. I... I heard a, uh, a, a monk at a conference one time say that war is always a tragedy for humanity. Would you agree with that? Yes. And would you say that the wars that the United States has been involved in in recent years has wounded the soul of America? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Iraq was really a disastrous decision. Of course, we're losing the war in Afghanistan pretty badly. We've replicated the occupation of the Red Army where we control the urban centers, sort of, where about only 20% of Afghans live. And the rest of the country is either in dispute or in the hands of the Taliban. Uh, I mean, the, the great tragedy of our foray into the Middle East is that none of it had to be done. Four trillion dollars of wasted money, hundreds of thousands of innocents dead for nothing. Um, that's the, you know, the, I, I covered uh, Al-Qaeda right after 9-11. I was in the Middle East. And the only way to fe- defeat terrorism is to isolate terrorist groups within their own society. 
And we had garnered the empathy, not only of the world, but the Muslim world. Muslims were appalled at what had been carried out, this crime against humanity that had been committed in the name of their religion. At, at 9-11? Yeah. yeah. And if we had, been the, had the courage to be vulnerable, we would be far safer and more secure today than we are. Instead, we played right into their hands, and we re-credentialized this terrorist group by killing on a massive scale and occupying Muslim land and uh, inflamed the region. I mean, we now have proxy wars spreading into Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, um, all the rumblings about Iran. Uh, yeah, that's the real, the real tragedy of 9-11 is that we had a moment and, and we, we messed it up. Hmm. The, uh, the, the tragedy of, of war, and yet we keep doing it. I mean, from the beginning of civilization, from when Cain killed Abel, we, right. we well, keep doing this. Every generation seems to have to learn it for itself. And it's very hard to fight the myth because the myth is seductive. Uh, when we watch retired generals or colonels talk about weapons systems and the power of weapons systems. The coded message is not just the power of those systems, but an extension of our own personal power. Um, you know, war uh, can overcome feelings of alienation and loneliness and uh, uh, create a kind of false sense of uh, equality or egalitarianism. Uh, it, it's very seductive, especially when it begins before the body bags start coming home. Uh, and that's just been true throughout human society, uh, human history. I mean, there have been very precious few years in 4,000 years of recorded history where there haven't been wars somewhere. Um, but war, in, in its essence, is, is about death. It's about, it's, it's not, von Clausewitz is wrong, it's not politics by another means. It's about the destruction of all living systems, familial, environmental, social, political, economic. Uh, it really is, you know, to use Freud, thanatos. It is, it is the death instinct. And, and on that giddy ride, uh, people can not only embrace annihilation, but finally self-annihilation. That was certainly true in Serbia. I mean, there became a point uh, in which the war, uh, to anybody who stopped and thought about, you know, meant self-destruction and yet they couldn't let go of it. Um, I mean, after 1943, that was true in Nazi Germany as well. The movie Downfall sort of captured that pretty well. Given all of the years that you have spent covering war and cover covering human tragedy, as well as your um, uh, involvement with the Occupy movement and, and all these other things that you've been involved in, what do you understand now about human nature? Well, I mean, I've certainly seen the dark side of human nature. I've seen that human beings like to destroy not only things, but other human beings. I know how intoxicating that is. Um, I know how, through fear, whole populations can be rendered compliant in acts of evil. Um, I have watched really courageous figures, Oscar Romero and others, stand up. Uh, lonely figures to speak truth uh, at the cost of their own lives. Uh, I've, so I've certainly understood what it means uh, you know, to bear witness. Um, and yet, 
uh, you know, as Vasily Grossman writes in his beautiful book, Life and Fate, uh, you know, it's not a matter of systems of good and evil. It's a matter of, you know, a great evil trying to crush these sort of kernels of human kindness. And yet the more senseless and vast and incomprehensible this kindness is, um, the more powerful it is. Uh, and, uh, and I think that that, you know, and Viktor Frankl writes this, I mean, I think that is our, humankind's meaning. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I guess one comes out of the cauldrons of death with a certain understanding of death's destructive power, but also the power of love. Um, and it's, you know, when the shells would come into Sarajevo, these huge 155 howitzers, 90 millimeter tank rounds, leaving dismembered bodies everywhere, you would see people, you know, in the midst of just horrible carnage, you would see people push through the crowds looking for loved ones, and you could actually feel they were palpable, radiating outwards these kind of concentric circles of death and love, death and love, death and love. Um, and and so that when you are at that level of despair and destruction, um, everything, is, all the facades are torn down. And, and while death is powerful, you understand that love is powerful too. I mean, I was in Vensala Square uh, for the Velvet Revolution every night with Václav Havel and the Magic Lantern. And I saw the power of lonely acts of resistance where one of the great folk singers, Marta Kubashaya, I'm probably butchering her last name, who had sung that anthem of defiance when the Soviets came in in 68. And then after the Soviets regained control and overthrew Dubček, she became a non-person. They destroyed her recording stock. Uh, you never heard her on the airwaves. Um, she was reduced to working at an assembly line in a toy factory. And, and so there it is, uh, uh, you know, 21 years later, and she walks out on that balcony, 500,000 people in the square, and she begins singing that song. And everyone around me knew every word. Uh, I mean, and everyone, most of the people around me hadn't even been born hmm. in 68. Uh, and the tears were sort of running down their cheeks that, that you know, keeping that flame alive. I mean, Auden wrote, wrote it in 1st of September, 1939. Defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies, yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out, wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them of eros and of dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. There's a reason dictatorships seek to crush that flame, because it's far more powerful than we know. Give, a, give some of the uh, the the would-be writers in our audience, some advice. Well, I'll, How was that for a segue? I'll steal a line from Dorothy Parker. Buy uh, elements of style uh, and then a pistol... No, no, download it. Download yeah. it. And then a pistol to shoot yourself. <laughs> um, well, writing is... Uh, I mean, for me, it's a compulsion, and, and, you know, I don't, it's like breathing. I don't like going more than a few days without writing. You're never happy with your work. 
you write until you can't look at it anymore. Uh, but the idea that you know you've produced something that's worthy, um, there's yeah, it's it's a kind of constant frustration and obsession. You know, I wake up in the middle of the night and think, you know, I, of something I should change. Uh, and then I'm too lazy to write it down, so I can't go back to sleep because I'm worried I'm going to forget it. <laughs> uh, that's what writing is. Uh, writing... I'm asking for advice. I I, stop depressing them. I mean, tell, tell, give, them, give them some tools here. Memorize. Memorize. All great writers memorize a lot. And uh, I, uh, I, was, I did a lot of theater, so I memorized a lot of Shakespeare in college. Um, Read. I mean, you know, you read great writers. Proust is an absolutely amazing writer. I mean, I would say only Shakespeare's greater. Um, <laughs> but that requires solitude. Um, you can't read Proust if you have things sticking in your ears. Um, it requires time. It, you know, I, there's a reason I don't have a TV. I try and read two to three hours a night at least. Um, partly because I don't want the cacophony of... Uh, the popular culture to give me the language by which I speak, even if it's a contrary language. Um, and, uh, you know, all good writing is rewriting. Um, I don't like blogs. I, I, I think, you know, especially if you're a good writer, don't write a blog. Uh, I, I just saw Matt... Wait, wait a second. You said don't write a blog if yeah, you're a good writer. Because, you know, I write a column, but I spend three or four days on it before it comes out on Mondays at Truth Dig. Uh, and this, I, I saw that Taibi has, I, Ty, I think Taibi's an incredibly gifted journalist and writer, but he shouldn't be writing a blog. He's better off writing, you know, one piece a week. Because if, he, if it's crafted and he has the capacity to craft it, it'll have far more power than just sort of banging something out when you get out of the shower. Um, and, you know, it's also sort of insulting. I mean, you have to think. You know, you, you, it requires you to reflect and I mean, I think good writing takes time, and, and, it, and that time has to be uh, spent where you've really built walls up around all the distractions that really that seek to, to destroy the capacity for concentration. All right. Now, I want to close this way. You would come back from war coverage, and you would go hike up in the mountains. Uh, no cell phone, no internet. And um, you wrote this paragraph. Would you read it for us as we conclude? Year after year, I return to these forbidding peaks from conflicts in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans. I had a house in Maine on an 800-foot hill with no telephone, no television, cell phone, or internet service. The phone number was unlisted. It rarely rang. I refused to give the number to my employer, the New York Times. I brought with me the stench of death, the cries of the wounded, the bloated bodies on the side of the road, the fear, the paranoia, the alienation, the insomnia, the anger, and the despair, and threw it at these mountains. I strapped my pack on in the pounding rain at trailheads and drove myself and later my son up the mountains. I rarely stopped. Once in a bitter rain, I crested the peak of Mount Madison in August 
and was immediately thrown backward by howling winds whipping across the ridge and pelting hailstones. It was impossible to reach the summit. On a hike in the remote Pemajawasset wilderness, I made a wrong turn, and fearing hypothermia, walked all night. By the time the sun rose, my blisters had turned to open sores. I wrung the blood out of my socks. I go to the mountains to at once spend this fury and seek renewal, to be reminded of my tiny, insignificant place in the universe, and to confront mystery. Wendell Berry writes, In the Peace of Wild Things, When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Chris Hedges, thank you so much for being with us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.